Welcome back to Index Ventures AI series. Today, we are talking about the practical applications of AI in business. We have a great lineup of guests. Index's Aaron Price-Wright interviews Alexander Wang, CEO and founder of Scale AI, Anima Andakumar, professor at Caltech and director of ML Research at NVIDIA, and Martin Chavez, partner and vice chairman of Six Street Partners. Enjoy. Thank you all for joining us for the next session in our AI Summit. I'm Erin, an engineer by background and current investor at Index, focused on AI, data applications, and infrastructure. Today, I am absolutely thrilled to be joined by three incredible leaders to discuss practical applications of AI. To start, would love it if you could all share a bit about your background, what got you into this space. Um, Alex, why don't you start us off? Hey, everyone. I'm Alex. I'm the CEO and founder of Scale AI. We are an infrastructure company for AI. We build tools and products and infrastructure that allow uh, other companies to build incredible things with AI. So we're incredibly excited to talk about practical applications of AI because we see them every single day with each one of our customers. Um, in terms of how I personally got started into AI and into what Scale does, um, I was actually studying AI and machine learning at MIT before I started Scale. I was kind of the phase, and I often think about it as the phase when it was clear that AI was intellectually very interesting. And it was even, I mean, AI has always been very intellectually interesting, as we know from like sort of sci-fi and and all these sort of like doomsday scenarios of AI. So the thought that you can have these algorithms that can um, that can uh, sort of simulate or 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 do things that traditionally we thought only humans can do is obviously very um, very intellectually interesting. But it's kind of before a lot of the economics impacts of AI and machine learning. It was really, for example, in the very early days of of deep learning. And I uh, so studying AI and machine learning at MIT, I kind of felt like, hey, it's, it feels like AI is going to have this huge impact in the world. Um, so I built a uh, side project. I tried to build a camera inside my fridge that would um, that would tell me when uh, my roommates were taking my food. And uh, and I very quickly, I was working on this for maybe like two hours, and I realized, you know, there's no way that I'm going to be able to solve the data problem to be able to actually build this thing which kind of led to scale and sort of this insight that, you know, data is the new code, that you need huge amounts of data. You know, if you think about what separates a good and bad algorithm, it really is all the data that that separates the performance, not necessarily the code. Um, and so that inspired me to start scale. Scale, we've grown uh, now to a almost 500-person company uh, based here in San Francisco. Um, and we help all sorts of industries from automotive companies, to big tech companies, to uh, retail and e-commerce companies, to the U.S. government, and everything in between. Any smart fridge companies? Actually, it's funny that you mentioned that. Um, well, I sat down with the the guy who runs Amazon Go the other day, the sort of just walk out mm -hmm. grocery store, which is the exact same technical problem. And he said they needed a ton of data. Love it. Marty, how about you? Well, I would describe my story as if you live long enough, you get to be considered a pioneer. And what I mean by that is that I had a, a dream, really a fantasy, back in the 80s when I was a master's student at Harvard, MIT, and then later a grad student at Stanford of automating medical diagnosis. And, and many people share that dream. That was a dream that was out there at the time. Could you just put in all the symptoms and manifestations and then out comes the probability ranked differential diagnosis. How hard can that possibly be? Well, it didn't take long at, at this program called Artificial Intelligence in Medicine, some aim, uh, for us to figure out 
that if there are a thousand diseases in general internal medicine and 10,000 manifestations, that calculating that probability distribution is a calculation whose complexity is on the order of a thousand to the 10,000. And uh, the compute power was just way, way too low. And so that propels the rest of my story. Um, realizing that the compute power was too low to do anything, I, uh, I, I heeded the siren call to do anything in medicine. I heeded the siren call of Wall Street, which had uh, problems they were prepared to pay to solve and were pressing problems and were way, way easier problems. And so what started off as what I thought was a two-year pay off my student debt um, ended up at 26 years at Goldman Sachs. And we didn't, we didn't use AI or anything resembling it for almost all of that 20, 26 years. But in the last few years, it got really interesting. After, uh, and, and I'll talk, I, I imagine in this discussion about some of those examples of nonlinear pattern analysis, otherwise known as machine learning or AI um, in finance, and then when I retired from Goldman Sachs, I went back to my roots uh, and in the life sciences. And, and I found that while I've been doing this tour away on Wall Street, uh, 26 years was uh, 13 or so, maybe 15 generations of Moore's Law. And the computers were now into the second half of the chessboard. And you could do all kinds of interesting things, things that like AI-enabled drug, drug discovery, people would have laughed if you had mentioned that in the 80s, right? There's there's 10,000 trillion organic compounds and only 4,000 approved drugs in the world. Like, how are you going to go through that, that search space? Well, now it turns out that you can. So these are exciting times. Well, compute and Moore's Law is a great transition um, to you, Anima. Would love to hear, you know, what brought you here? Yeah. Hi, uh, Anima Anand Kumar. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I'm a professor at Caltech as well as Director of AI Research at NVIDIA. And, you know, ever since like high school days, right, when I first started learning about probability and that there is a mathematical foundation for inherently random and uncertain things in the world, right, it's such a different thinking from like having deterministic, you know, laws of physics, Newton's laws and studying equations to reasoning about uncertainty. And I think that kind of like, was like, oh, wow, I can finally make sense of all the <laughs> crazy uncertain things in the world to some extent. During my like undergrad and grad school, I was looking into statistical signal processing in the context of what we now call the edge AI or internet of things, right? Like kind of small devices, if they have to transmit, uh, they have limited power, what valuable information should they be transmitting? And how do they collaborate in a distributed manner to like kind of right, derive insights to see if there are anomalies. So again, I think it's that mathematical foundation that made it very fascinating for me to get started on this very hard problem. And back, you know, decade ago, there wasn't still like all the hardware platforms, right? Like what we see with the NVIDIA Jetsons available. So I moved to kind of right, thinking about the big data problems in the context of extracting hidden variables. You know, all these problems are inherently about, you know, like kind of seeing the unseen, right? So, you know, if you think about like, 
the underlying communities in social networks. You know, you may have some cues in terms of metadata, but people connect in such interesting ways that that's not a labeled uh, phenomenon, right? You may not be able to pinpoint what different communities they belong to. Or like look at categorizing news articles, right? You could like kind of say, what is the list of topics? It need not be one topic. It could cover a whole range of topics in a single article. So it's kind of that richness of like latent variables that uh, got me very fascinated. And, you know, what we saw was looking at tensors as a multi-dimensional object that can incorporate these kind of relationship between multiple variables together, right? Like for instance, how words co-occur in a document. Like, you know, if a group of words are occurring commonly, you could kind of treat that as specifying a certain topic, right? So, but how do we do that at a large scale um, was uh, one of the methods I invented using tensor methods to extract topics automatically. And then when we come to the era of uh, deep learning, we see what I call the trinity of data, right? Like as um, both Alex and Martin mentioned, like kind of uh, lots of data available, lots of compute with the end of Moore's law and the GPU acceleration, right? Having uh, now the availability of very fast parallel primitives and the flexibility of neural networks coming together. And uh, with that, you know, there is just so much to work on. So some of the latest things I've been excited about is in the realm of AI for science, like what Martin mentioned on AI-enabled drug discovery. Uh, we are able to show like quantum mechanical level calculations, you know, like really precise calculations, but be thousands of times faster than the numerical methods and be much more accurate in like kind of right the um, uh, search for better drugs, better targeted uh, discovery of certain properties, uh, but also other phenomena like weather and climate, you know, like climate change is perhaps the most pressing problems humanity is facing today. So how about being able to have right sharp uncertainty estimates along with good predictions and doing that really fast? Uh, because if we uh, back of the onward calculation shows that if we need to get all the way down to one kilometer resolution, spatial resolution and fast forward just even 10 years, right? So really high resolution, precise measurements, it would take more than 10 to the 11 more compute than what we have today. So, you know, so this is, we have lots of compute, but it's nowhere enough when we want to solve all these hard problems, whether it's weather modeling or drug discovery. And that's where AI can really like give us this million, million X leap forward in many of the domains. And that's exciting. Super exciting. Yeah, maybe kicking it off. I think we're all sort of realizing that we're on the, the tip of what, what is a pretty large transformation in the world um, with AI being, you know, real and practical and, and coming into our businesses. I'm curious, like, how is AI adoption today starting to change business models for classical enterprises? And maybe, Marty, I'll kick this one over to you, um, having spent a long time in what I would consider a, a classical enterprise, to, to share your thoughts on that journey. It's a classic enterprise for sure. What I would say the most important observation, and this is this is one that everybody is aware of now, but it's super important, is, as we've said, you need the data first. And so something that really positioned Goldman Sachs, where I spent most of my career, was something that we started doing in the early 90s, where we had a philosophy that we like all time series. 
We never stop and ask, is this a time series worth keeping? But whenever you become aware of a time series, not only do you become aware of it, you gather it, and then you put in place a process to clean it and curate it and name it to the extent that you can, which is very hard in finance. There are millions of time series. So we started doing this in the early 90s, and we were doing it assiduously. And then as various regulatory events happened, there was predictably in the classic enterprise, a lot of grumbling. Oh, now we have to gather this data set for the regulators as well and report on it. And we actually turned that into a huge advantage. We discovered again and again that being required by the regulators uh, to gather these, these time series, we just embrace it as, okay, it's just another time series. And those time series turned out to be gold mines of information. So to take a particular example, uh, all banks are engaged in maturity transformation, just a long-winded way of saying that on the one side, the customers can take their deposits out at any moment. And then on the other side, you're lending it out for 30 years. And that's a very big mismatch. And to manage that mismatch, you need to have liquidity buffers. In the case of very large firms such as Goldman Sachs, those liquidity buffers are $200 billion plus of just cash at the Fed in a slush fund. And that is expensive to have that kind of cash. That can be 20% of your balance sheet in cash earning nothing. And so there's an incredible optimization problem there. What is the right amount of liquidity to have? On most days, you don't need that much. And then a pandemic happens and you need a lot. But you can't wait until the pandemic has already happened to go raise the liquidity. You had to have it before. So it's really circular and it's really nonlinear. Having all of these data sets lovingly curated turned out to be a superpower. And when we let loose a whole range of machine learning techniques on all this data we had, suddenly we had this unbelievable tool to know not just how much liquidity should we have today, but how much liquidity should we have a year from now or three years from now or five years from now. It's not, it's not as complicated as the weather, but it's, it's, it's getting up there and it takes a lot of compute to do this. And so, so I think a failure mode to conclude for, for classic enterprises, which we've also seen, is let's go get some ML scientists and then sprinkle them. Or we'll have a center of excellence of some ML scientists and they'll do something amazing and then we'll, we'll pour it on top of the, the old company as some kind of overlay. I, I just would never recommend that and I can't imagine that ever working. I've never seen it working. Instead, you have to have a data-driven, algorithmic, problem-solving mindset embedded in your culture where you never met a, a data series that you didn't like and you keep it all and then you, you do something with it. That's a really interesting point that you make about kind of how you think about structuring in large organizations, your data teams. Um, because I do think, you know, on the one hand, I think you're exactly right. And that's a big failure mode that we've seen again and again um, with companies that they have this sort of like off, off the beaten path in a little dark corner, making up their own problems for, the, for themselves, R&D teams, um, rather than being accountable to business outcomes. But at the same time, I think enterprises, as we've seen over the last five years, have been responsible for a lot of really important developments in the space of R&D. So I'm actually 
Uh, I'm also curious, like, how do you think about how should enterprises balance research activity with practical applications? Like, what successful models have you seen for how to structure kind of internal AI and machine learning efforts so that you're both kind of pushing the industry forward and kind of making meaningful business outcomes? Maybe, uh, Anima, since you you all do so much research over there, I'd be curious to hear your perspective for how you balance this. I mean, you know, to me, I think, you know, what makes NVIDIA such a great and unique company is like that, you know, being so agile and dynamic, right, while doing the work that, you know, we are publishing, we are like talking about it. At the same time, we are looking at, you know, how to make this practical and how do we engineer this at scale and how does it lie in the ecosystem that we have, right? Because NVIDIA is no longer just about the hardware, but the entire computing platform, right? So CUDA is the basis, but on top of it, what are the platforms? You know, when it comes to healthcare, we have Clara, right? Everything from medical imaging to genomic analysis to drug discovery, all these models that are pre-trained and available or enabling like uh, the constraints of the platforms such as federated learning. One thing I'm very proud of is how in the beginning of the pandemic, at 20 hospitals, uh, used federated learning in our platform and within 20 days had an AI model for patient care. That was one of the first AI models that was there and uh, really kind of helped drive some sense into this fairly senseless pandemic, at least in the beginning. So I think, uh, you know, to me, like understanding the constraints of each domain and building an ecosystem and a platform is so important. And so research is such an important component of this because as we speak, these are all really still unsolved problems, right? I mean, how do we do federated learning at scale, you know, thinking about differential privacy, for instance, as a metric or other kinds of membership attacks or other, you know, constraints on privacy that we want to incorporate, right? So there is algorithmic research, but at the same time, having hospitals as partners and having real world data and engineering at scale to you know, showcase how these efforts can pay off. I think, you know, we need both sides of the coin. And that's what we've seen in every domain from like kind of right uh, computer vision to language models. We have large scale language models. We have the 530 billion language model that we recently trained. And now we are looking into, you know, what are the toxicity in these models, right? How can we minimize that? You know, how can we uh, do like few short instructions uh, efficiently at such large scale models? And these are black boxes. So how do we better understand their functionality and uh, make, have a diverse set of use cases that are easy for even a non-expert to easily define what they want out of these models. So I think that's where there is room for like kind of doing open-ended research, publishing it, and also like kind of talking about the downsides and the dangers of these models, right? That freedom is so important. But we wouldn't be able to do it unless we engineer this large-scale model and we have uh, the frameworks that can handle data and model parallel training at scale and having the compute ability to do this on thousands of GPUs. So all these are examples where, right, it's really a one-team philosophy. You know, that's what Jensen believes in, having as kind of have a seamless collaboration rather than a separate silos. On that point you made about how do you think about tying research activities to a set of real world use cases or or real world data? Alex, I'm curious because, you know, you guys have pushed the field further as well. How do you manage that? So if you take a big step back and you think about AI 
and its potential impacts on on traditional industries, which is obviously one of the things that as as a community we're all really excited about. You know, one way to think about what's happened already is that a lot of the early use cases of AI, you know, the, the first use cases of, of large-scale machine learning were in, in ads technology or or more or less these like fully digital technology companies. So that, you know, like the Googles and the Facebooks were the first companies to adopt large-scale machine learning techniques. And then as those shifted towards deep learning, they were the first to adopt deep learning in a large-scale way to actually generate a lot of business value. And a lot of that is because conceptually, these businesses, Google and Facebook, were constrained to a purely purely digitally constrained. So everything that those businesses were doing, more or less, were done with a computer only. And then what what that allowed is like, now that you had AI and machine learning, which is a strict improvement of capability, a strictly better set of capabilities for um, a machine, then all of a sudden they could use it and generate all this value within their business. And that's one of the reasons they've transformed uh, the quickest. Then if you compare that to traditional enterprises um, or, or most traditional companies, there's this like, they're very operation intensive. They have this mix of the small sliver of things are digital, but most things are done um, with people in the real world. And part of the, the challenge, you know, if you're to think about why is it that AI has not had any impact on these enterprise organizations, part of the challenge has been that you can't just sub in AI and expect it to perform better than people in all these contexts. Um, it's not strictly better than people in almost any context. It, like you do not have algorithms that perform strictly better than a human would in in most situations. And so you need to totally redesign what you're doing and how you solve these problems, and totally redesign the operational processes to be able to adapt to uh, using a machine learning algorithm or using AI. So that was a big diatribe. But the, getting to like the reason this is relevant for your point is like how do you integrate conceptual thinking around real world data, real world applications of AI with, with research outcomes. You know, research outcomes are about showing theoretical uh, improvements to um, to performance. So it's like in, in a somewhat constrained environment or somewhat constrained setup, do you have algorithms that perform at a higher performance, which is which is great. But a lot of when when you think about applying AI with real world data to the real to to real world situations, so much of that is not only the thinking about the algorithm and what's the data in the algorithm that like fuels this like incredible algorithm, of course, it's about the operational redesign that will allow the algorithm to be productive and impactful for the business process. And so I think this all this is goes to say, which is that like, I think a lot of people think about like sprinkling, you know, going back to Marty's point, like you like sprinkle AI on things that you do, and then all of a sudden they're going to be better. No, 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 you don't sprinkle AI. You kind of have to like, like, Di- like perform surgery on what you're doing and then like implant AI deep into the guts of, of what you're building. And that's the only way that you're going to actually get real business outcomes. Final point. Uh, the thing that is really underrated, I think, when it comes to AI are, I don't know if you call it product people or product engineers or product managers or um, or operations folks, you know, folks who are willing and able to to get in and perform that surgery in a way that's very cross-functional is incredibly, incredibly important. Like that's the, that's really what's at a premium right now with where we're at in AI transformation. I love the way you put that as surgery. Cause um, you know, having, before I became an investor, I was at Palantir for a long time and spent a lot of, a long time doing those surgeries. So uh, I, uh, I resonate with that description. I guess this brings me to like, 
when we think about the industries that are sort of ripe for this sort of surgical intervention based on some of the innovations of the last few years, which have been astounding, um, in what sectors do you think AI is sort of poised to make an outsized impact? Like when you think about, you know, certain types of businesses, which ones will be the most unrecognizable um, thanks to AI? And maybe the, on the converse of that, like, what do you think is a bit overhyped where, you know, maybe we're not quite ready for, for AI to uh, completely transform the way they work? Marty, I'll kick this one over to you. Well, I'll start off with something I don't know if I'd say over overhyped. Um, I don't expect AI to transform the world of financial services into a form that's unrecognizable. Now, there are some hugely difficult problems in financial services, fraud detection, know your client, anti-money laundering. And I do expect AI radically to improve the quality of those processes. And, and we will notice that, and that will be a good thing for the planet. But I don't know that that would make the, the business uh, unrecognizable, but it's super important. It's an accelerant and it's a competitive advantage. And on the flip side, if you don't do it, you'll, you'll be out of business. But the industry I really want to talk about, and here I'm just entirely talking my own book because most of my investments are in healthcare and life sciences, and I'm chairman of the board of recursion pharmaceuticals, is pharmaceuticals. This is an industry, I don't know, maybe in med school, it was, it was my best subject. I absolutely loved pharmacology. Um, I'll just, I won't say anything more about that, but <laughs> it, was, it was an amazing topic for me and I adored it. And, and I always wanted to do something about about pharmaceuticals because of this problem of 10,000 trillion organic compounds and, and why are there only 4,000 approved drugs globally? And that number is just very slowly in, increasing. And this is, this is an area that I think is particularly fascinating. And, and I will just talk about the company that I, that I know the best, which is Recursion. Recursion is doing pioneering work in machine learning. There's no question about it. But the techniques that Recursion is using are also being used elsewhere. And, and there's probably some extreme cutting edge state of the art um, that's, and there is definitively in machine learning um, that, that recursion we'll get to later. But here's something that recursion is doing right now that to my mind is essential, which is it's building robots and the robots grow dozens of human cell lines in culture. And then the robots systematically perturb those cells so let's start with number one of 30,000 genes and knock it out. Then let's knock out gene number two. Then let's knock out gene number one and gene two, gene one and gene three. You get the idea. Do every possible permutation of knockouts. This is a large number with 30,000 genes. And then on top of that, start throwing every possible small molecule and also knocking out genes. And then image the cells robotically and the cells will be disrupted and their organelles will look different under imaging and then apply machine learning to those images as a way to actually decode the underlying metabolic and biological process. Not the ones we learned in eighth grade biology, but the incredibly complicated nonlinear system that is actually happening. And so that you can start to, to identify drugs that way and prune the drug discovery space. And so it's this coupling of state-of-the-art numerical and algorithmic techniques with vast amounts of data that are being produced in a highly replicable, reliable, incredibly automated way. And that, that combination is, is just unbelievably powerful. 
And in an industry, I don't know the latest figure, 20% of US GDP, something like that. And the US largely paying for most pharmaceutical development globally, that's an industry that is in some very urgent need of transformation. And it's happening right now in front of us. I'm super excited about it, as you can tell. Well, what I love of the way you described it is it felt like almost a little factory line. Like it felt super operational. Like it wasn't just, I'm going to deploy this model, but I need to actually build this process with all these components and think about how they um, fit together, which kind of, you know, brings me back to, to Alex, what, you know, how, how you were thinking about the, the, the way that AI actually gets adopted in the enterprise. So I'm curious then maybe Alex, I'll kick you the same question. Um, Where do you think AI has the most uh, potential for outsized impact? It's a super good question. There, there's there's a few ways to think about this. I think one is, per my previous analogy around surgery, I think it's heavily dependent. Basically, the areas where AI will be adopted the most quickly are the areas where the surgery is the least severe, where you sort of like the lightest weight surgery that will actually produce value within the business. And this is, I think we can all agree, um, or hopefully, but we probably, we're all huge AI optimists, but I think we can all agree. In the fullness of time, AI is going to transform every single major industry. There's no, there will be no industry or no sector that is left untouched by AI. But in the meantime, the sort of like absorption or diffraction of AI through the corporate world or through through all of these uh, traditional industries is going to be based off of like, where is the, the sort of intervention or surgery the lightest? I think that actually biases towards industries that already have, for one reason or another, large amounts of digital data. And so financial services uh, or fintech is one of them. I think uh, Marty even talked about a lot of fairly old school use cases of where AI and machine learning have already been impacting financial services and fintech. Um, I think another really big one is retail and e-commerce. And this is structurally because in the past, especially over the past year, there's this acceleration from traditional retail, which is in person towards e-commerce. And then as you accelerate towards e-commerce, most of the things that happen are purely digital in nature. You know, they're just, they purely happen on machines. And as that's happening, you have this opportunity to layer in and utilize AI and machine learning just in the same way that the past generation of tech companies was able to layer in AI and machine learning onto ads. And so I think there's this big opportunity for retail and e-commerce to pretty meaningfully transform themselves with AI and machine learning, um, especially as the, the world is sort of like double whammy accelerating towards e-commerce in the first place. And, and then there's there's a bunch more sectors where they already have large amounts of digital data, which you can which you can operate on top of. I think logistics is an interesting one. Pharmaceuticals is certainly interesting uh, per Marty's conversation. But then there's this whole other class, which is uh, areas where there's a necessity to innovate in in AI. And so scale. We got started in the autonomous vehicle and the self driving industry. And part of the reason that industry moved so quickly was because there was a real necessity to implement AI into AI and machine learning for autonomous driving, for driver assistance into uh, all of our all of our vehicles and our whole, um, all of our automobiles. You know, I think one really critical area that stands out to me as, as an area where AI is, for reasons of necessity, is going to have to change things is in the government and for national security. The government, we currently have all of our eyes on China as our main competitor, um, and China has proven an incredible capability of, of integrating technology and innovation into their national security enterprise and into how they govern their society. And when it comes to national security, the battlefield has shifted from 
the physical front line to a digital one and one that is primarily waged on AI, cyber, et cetera. And so I don't think it's easy to perform surgery on how we operate as a uh, as a government and as a country. I think it's probably from a ease perspective, one of the more difficult places for us to utilize AI, but I think it's an absolute necessity right now. And so I think it's imperative that as a country, we integrate AI into everything that we do as quickly as possible from a national security perspective to remain competitive. And so I'm very excited and bullish about that use case, not because it's going to be easy, but because it's necessary. And what do you think, Anima? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's like kind of doubling down on uh, weather and climate, right? So it's going to fundamentally change how we are doing it today because we have this really expensive numerical models that you know are uh, also right having modeling errors. And uh, it's very hard to model cloud cover, especially if you think about precipitation and the microphysics that's involved there and the long-term change that comes about by right, like the precision of these models. So I think uh, machine learning has a lot of potential to do this multi-scale modeling. You know, a lot of work we are doing has been in the uh, realm of uh, partial differential equations. How do we capture such fluid turbulence using machine learning-based models, right, without necessarily kind of having to do like fine-scale discretization like traditional models do, and hence get even up to a million times speed up over traditional methods. And so I think we'll fundamentally see a shift in how we can like gather all of world's data, right? I mean, right now there's a weather model, there's a climate model, and they don't agree with each other. <laughs> you know, at some point weather becomes climate, right? But we don't have a common model for that. You know, the energy atlas of this country, we don't have a common energy atlas of all different sources of energy. Where are the grids? What are the vulnerabilities if there are extreme weather? We don't have an answer to that, right? So ultimately what we want is a twin earth, right? Like phenomena of this planet, can we bring that into the simulation, into the metaverse? And so that's where NVIDIA has announced Earth 2 as the supercomputer to make all this happen and to really, you know, catalyze the research uh, in this direction. So I'm very excited about that. I'm also excited about the healthcare domain, you know, to Marty's point about like the pharma industry. Um, one of the startups, Entos, uh, is based on the research we did at Caltech, where we go all the way down to the quantum mechanical properties and calculating that with AI, right? And so that precise calculations could help us search much more effectively in the space of all molecules to pick the right ones. Um, so I think, and we've also seen the impact of that in understanding how the COVID-19 virus interacts in the aerosol and kind of, right, how does it survive in the mucin and like kind of interacts with uh, the cells of our body. So I think having like a billion atom simulation like this would have been unheard of even a few years ago. So it's both like, you know, accelerated computing augmented by AI that has made it possible to do this extreme scale as well as multi-scale simulations. Sorry, sorry, I meant to give you a shout out. The, the supercomputer that Recursion uses is an NVIDIA supercomputer. Yes, of course, of course. BioHive, number, BioHive 1, and for probably one minute, it's number 58 on the global list. But <laughs> thank you for that. I'm very happy that, you know, uh, Chris Gibson and the Recursion team are so bullish on uh, GPUs and they are being pioneers in using it in that sector. I did visit their, you know, your company in Utah and Salt Lake City and uh, it, it's 
them had a board discussion when they wanted us to agree to actually buy one. Can't you just rent that at Google? But uh, yeah, we're glad we did. It's working out amazing. Yes, indeed, indeed. So, so I think you know there's lots of industries like that, but ultimately, I would say that the fundamental scientific method itself will see a change, right? Because right now there's a lot of human intuition on what hypothesis do we even select, right? And then what experiments do we do? You know, how do we validate it and then go back all the way again? So, if we can speed all that up and kind of bring intuition into machine learning, we've seen that with a lot of great examples for reinforcement learning, including the protein folding and all the game playing examples. So I think a lot of scientific disciplines where we augment human intuition with AI will see a fundamental change. Um, the other one which is overhyped is I really wish it to be a reality, but we are not going to see a robotic dog anytime soon. <laughs> you know, my partner is like, oh, it's going to be too much work to have a pet dog, you know, just have invent a robotic dog and then you can put it in the closet when we travel so we don't have to worry about it. <laughs> so probably not happening in my lifetime. And uh, I think dogs are just too cute. We can't replace them. <laughs> I love that one. I think last question, we have time for one more. Uh, this wouldn't be a new year panel if we didn't ask for predictions. So um, let's close it out. I'm curious to hear what predictions do you have for AI over the next decade? And uh, maybe um, Alex, we'll start with you. I think one major trend, you even heard um, both Anima and, and Marty talk about it today, is uh, AI and machine learning impacting science and totally changing how we do science. I think that is like everything that Anima was talking about is incredibly, incredibly exciting. You know, basically the one way to think about where the bottlenecks we've been in science, I think there's been, for example, there's, there've been these papers that have talked about how um, is science progress slowing down? And I think uh, there is some reality to that because basically the way to think about it is that there's a certain space of ideas that humans can computationally sort of explore. Then there's like another space where humans plus computers can explore and kind of hit the limits of that. And then now we're going to enter this realm where like it's humans plus computers with AI. And now we can explore a significantly broader range of concepts and ideas than we could have in the past. And, you know, in, in science, experiments are very, very expensive generally, um, especially large scale experiments in physics, for example, you know, to build one of these accelerators, it costs tens of billions of dollars or whatnot, or potentially even hundred billion dollars in pharmaceuticals. These, these trials are very extremely, extremely expensive, hundreds of millions of dollars for a phase three trial. And, and so a lot of these experiments are incredibly expensive, but if you're able to, utilizing AI, see this million X speed up in what machines are able to do, it totally changes. It basically means that like, if humans had like a certain level of scientific ability, let's say we're standing on the shoulders of giants, now we're gonna be standing on the shoulders of a skyscraper, looking around and seeing, you know, what are all the different ideas to explore? What are all the different scientific concepts? And so I think that's a very, it's an extremely embedded and very exciting, like underlying theme that is going to unleash a huge amount of innovation and a huge amount of really exciting technology over the course of the next, you know, not only decade, but like many decades. That structurally is like one of the ones to focus on. Um, I think the other ones are, I think that like, uh, obviously, Every industry is going to be transformed with AI. At this point, we all know that. I do think that the government use of AI is going to be incredibly critical for defending democracy over the course of the next decade. I really think that the uh, Secretary of Defense, Austin Lloyd, recently gave 
a presentation in the Reagan National Defense Forum where he talked about how innovation and in particular partnering with innovative companies and technology companies is going to be really critical for the United States strategy and competing with China. I think that is definitely, definitely true. And I think that over the course of the next decade, um, the the focus on, on AI and machine learning is only going to increase and frankly needs to be a lot higher than it even is today. Um, and then, you know, the last piece, if we think about uh, the next gen consumer experiences. So uh, there's obviously been a lot of talk around metaverse and what, what does metaverse even mean? Um, and how does crypto integrate with that, et cetera. But I think that, you know, to, it feels very certain that the next gen consumer experiences are going to be critically enabled with AI. And so if you think about augmented reality, for example, which is one version of the metaverse that, um, you know, we think about, or some sort of like embodied avatar experience, uh, either in VR or AR, you know, I think that the, maybe one of the things that's not so obvious to everybody who talks about it is that one of the biggest roadblocks to accomplishing that is actually uh, AI. You know, the metaverse is actually an AI problem um, at its core because we don't yet have algorithms which can do the kind of perception that you need to do. We don't have an algorithm that where you can walk into a room that you haven't been in and understand all the objects inside of it, understand how you could overlay digital objects on top of it. We don't have AI to understand um, sort of like humans and all their actions and how those actions interact with these digital objects that you'd want to overlay. And there's a lot in, just in terms of us being understand the, the real world or the physical world that needs to happen before you can have sort of these convincing metaverse um, concepts. Also, if you think about how crypto, which one version of that is enabling frictionless capitalism, you know, if you think about integrating frictionless capitalism into these systems, then similarly, you need an even deeper understanding of how these uh, transactions or how the capitalistic you know, activities interact with the real world, which again, is going to be an AI and machine learning problem. And so, um, and so I think that from, a, from all of our lives, I think our next generation of consumer experiences are going to be enabled through AI, whether that's kind of a lo-fi um, uh, use case or a lo-fi experience. Like, for example, I think a lot of us are going to have um, a chatbot friend in the not so distant future that just talks to us when we're feeling lonely and we like have problems that we need to, to, we need to vent to someone about. I think AI is going to be like really well suited to solve that lo-fi use case all the way to hi-fi use cases like AR. These are all going to need to be enabled through, through artificial intelligence. And so I think there's a lot to be excited about. I think um, AI is going to be the pillar of sort of like the next decade of foreign policy and, and how all of our countries interact with one another. It's going to be the core of consumer experiences, and it's going to be at the core of, of science. And so uh, I think there's no better time to be in the world of AI than now. Anima, predictions. Yeah, I think, you know, doubling down on like kind of right climate and environmental risks, I think in the next decade, uh, you know, broadly, we will have right countries like trying to build a coalition or trying to come up into agreements of what to do to reduce emissions. This is so important. And uh, right now there is a lot of, uh, right, uh, the carbon markets are still too early. And in fact, I saw a statistic that 97% uh, of them actually do not reduce emissions, right? So building the right economic framework and using, I guess, machine learning to have like kind of prediction markets and have right, the ability to kind of, right, understand where the biggest impact would come from, which policies, right, like, 
you know, if we had the twin Earths, then we can run a lot of what if scenarios, right? Where are the biggest risks? What are the extreme events? And which governments and which companies can contribute the most to mitigating those as well as new technologies such as for carbon dioxide sequestration, right? Whether it's capturing into materials, you know, having like cement, right? Where there is carbon capture to storing uh, carbon dioxide deep underground. How do we model like the pressure buildup and uh, the risks that go with it? So I think all those new technologies, right? will be using machine learning in some form or the other. And so that's where I see like, we need to do this yesterday, but now I think we are in a good place to right, not just use machine learning, but to really build this right, like twin earth and a holistic view of all the information together. You know, Without that, we wouldn't be able to make global level decisions on uh, what is the right strategy for this planet. We're going to need you to build that uh, infrastructure that we can do systems level AI modeling. So uh, we're we're looking at you. <laughs> Last but not least, um, Marty, what are your predictions? Well, like Anima, I've been fascinated my whole life with this concept of building digital twins, and everything I've done has really fit within that within that rubric. And so, so here's here's my prediction: after having built a digital twin of human cells, tissues, organs, bodies, communities that is of such high fidelity, we will have the first personal tailored medicine that's that's generated on the spot, synthesized on the spot for a particular patient. No clinical trials necessary because we will already have gathered all the data that we need and the rest can be done digitally. That's a bold one. Great note to end on. Thank you all so much for joining us today. It was a great conversation and looking forward to seeing you at the next session. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much, Aaron. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye.